Today's scripture is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looking, looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Has anybody told you today that you're the beloved of God? Let me turn my mic on so that you can hear me loud and clear. You're the beloved of God. Beloved sons, beloved daughters. And I hope I am maybe the fifth or sixth person on a Sunday morning that actually reminds you of that. Wouldn't it be great when we walk in the church to have people say, hey, you're the beloved of God. I share this with you, especially today, because the scriptures are a little bit challenging. And if we're not in a good place, we might wonder if we're really the beloved of God by what Jesus says. Huh? We are. I'll cut to the chase. We are the beloved of God. Over the last 30 years or so of my ministry, I have treasured conversations that people have had with me about their faith, about their struggles, about their searching for God. Sometimes that is in small group ministries. Sometimes that is in one-on-one. Very often when people call me up and say, Jeff, can we have coffee? Or can we have breakfast? Or can we have lunch? I presume that they want to talk about something more than the weather. And I'm grateful for that. And we often find ourselves talking about Uh, God and who God is to them at this time in their life. And usually it is through crisis and struggle, pain, deep prayer that our faith is sometimes challenged and shaken and 
Our God image is questioned. Praise God. Praise God, because our God image needs to be questioned. Our God image, if it is just from what we learned in Sunday school, it won't be enough for us to experience adult Christianity. It just won't be enough. And we need to challenge our our understanding of God. One of the pieces of wisdom from Francis of Assisi almost a thousand years ago was a very honest and humbling prayer that often comes up in conversation about people's spiritual lives and about their understanding of God. And this is what Francis prayed. God, who are you? And who am I? Do you hear the openness in that prayer? It's not saying, God, you have to fit my God image. God, you need to take care of me like I understand you. It's saying, God, whoever you are, I want to be in relationship with you. And whoever I am or I am becoming, I need your help. Who are you, God, and who am I? So as I was thinking about this sermon and about that beginning to the sermon, I was... Um, I had my sermon on the breakfast table. Sometimes I look that over to make sure that I remember what I'm supposed to say. And on the other side of the table is the New York Times. I happened to read some of the New York Times early this morning, and there's an article in today's Sunday New York Times entitled, We Need to Talk About God. It's a reflection on uh, a book written by Jonathan Merritt. And the book is entitled, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. Let me just read you a little bit of this. He did some research with the Barna Group, which is a, a group that studies the religious landscape and sociology in the United States and worldwide, they surveyed 1,000 American adults. The study revealed that most Americans, more than three-quarters, actually do not have spiritual or religious conversations. Three-quarters don't have spiritual or religious conversations, adults in the U.S., More than one-fifth of respondents admit they have not had a spiritual conversation at all in the past year. Six in ten say they had a spiritual conversation only on rare occasions. A paltry 7% of Americans say they talk about spiritual matters regularly. 7% talk about spiritual matters matters regularly. But here's the real shocker. Practicing Christians, that's us. Practicing Christians who attend church regularly aren't faring much better. A mere 13% of them had a spiritual conversation around once a week. You can tell me on the way out today if you're in that 13% or not. What it's showing is even people who worship regularly 
are for some reason having trouble taking the opportunity to have conversations about faith, spirituality, religion. The article goes on to talk about a Google search that has searched speeches, books, articles that have been written since 1500 up until 2008. And they've watched the trends of words that are used and words that are falling out of favor over time. This is what they discovered. We can now determine the frequency of word usage over the centuries. This data shows that most religious and spiritual words have been declining in the English-speaking world since the early 20th century. A study in the Journal of Positive Psychology analyzed 50 terms associated with moral virtue. Language about the virtues Christians call the fruits of the Spirit, words like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, have become much rarer. Humility words like modesty fell in their usage by 52%. Compassion words like kindness dropped 56%. Gratitude words like thankfulness declined by 49%. I'll close this article with reading one of the last paragraphs. He writes, The toothy televangelist keeps using spiritual language to call for donations to buy a second jet. The politician keeps using spiritual language to push unjust legislation. The street preacher keeps using spiritual language to peddle the fear of a fiery hell. They can dominate the conversation because we have stopped talking about God. In our effort to avoid contributing to the problem, we can actually worsen the problem. I commend this article to you. I'm sure it's online, and it will provoke some very good and thoughtful, hopefully religious, conversation. So this man who comes to Jesus in today's gospel and wants to seek him out, wants to have a spiritual conversation, wants to have a religious conversation. In fact, this man says, Jesus, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit life eternal? And the conversation that Jesus has with him is very helpful to us. It can be very helpful to us in telling us who God is and who God is not and may give us a clue as to some of the questions we need to ask of our own faith and our own God image. Jesus begins by saying to the man, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now that may seem like Jesus is being modest, but I think what Jesus is getting at is he's saying, Don't play the game of who's good and who's not good. It's a game. Don't play it. 
Only God is good. It is not for us human beings to decide who's good and who's not good. So Jesus says to the man, don't call me good. Only God is good. Jesus says, you know what the commandments are. And he lists the commandments. He lists a few of them. And then the man says, ah, I have been practicing these commandments since I was a little boy. And you can see that this guy is still playing the game. He did good things, so therefore he should get good things. I've been a good boy. I've been a good church-going person. I've been investing in my faith life. And I've ticked them off the list. Check. Done. And Jesus does something so beautiful. He looks at this man. And the scriptures say he loves him. He doesn't judge him. He doesn't guilt him or shame him. He loves him. He knows that this guy is genuinely asking how to get close to God, but he also knows that this guy thinks that God responds to good deeds with love. And it's really just the opposite. God does not love us because we are good. God loves us because God is good. Do you see the difference? Sometimes I sense that even in mainline Christianity, we think that God is like Santa Claus. God knows if we've been naughty or nice. And if we've been nice, we get good gifts. And if we've been naughty, well, not so much. That's not the God of Jesus. It's not the God of the Christian faith. But it has filtered into our consciousness. We are good, not because we're trying to achieve something, God's love, not because we're trying to get into heaven. We're good because God has been good to us. Goodness is our natural response to God's grace. So Jesus says to this man, if you really want to be close with God, If you want to know about the kingdom of God, then give up your possessions. Sell them. Give the money to the poor. They need it more than you do. And then come and follow me. Jesus identifies in this person. His possessions are keeping him from being close to God. He's trusting his 401k more than God. He's trusting his pension fund more than God. He's trusting his bank accounts more than God. He's trusting in the status that comes from all those possessions more than trusting in God, God's self. Now, wealth and possessions was this guy's hindrance. It may be ours too, but it may be something else. But what Jesus was saying to the man and to us is, whatever it is that keeps you from trusting the living God, give that up. You don't need it anymore. And the scriptures say that the man walked away sad. He was grieving. Now, I always thought that meant that he decided not to follow Jesus. But we don't know that. The scriptures end that story with him. Maybe he left for a while and realized 
I do want to love God more than my money. And maybe he came back and followed Jesus. We don't know. Or maybe he was grieving because he was going home to tell his wife what the financial plan was. (laughs) Or maybe he was grieving because he thought, oh, who am I going to be after I give up all my possessions? That's so much of my identity is my wealth. And that made him sad. We don't know what happened to him, but we do know that this whole conversation freaked out the disciples. And they said to Jesus, I think the the scriptures that G1 read today said they were astounded. Other versions say they were almost in shock. What? Jesus? Who, Who can be saved? Jesus says the same thing basically three times. Whenever Jesus repeats himself, that's the message to the early church and to us. Pay attention. This is hard stuff, but listen because Jesus really wants you to hear this. So Jesus says, first of all, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he goes into, you know, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. I remember studying this years ago and, and, and the Greek scholarship at the time was kamelos, was similar to kamelos. A kamelos is a, a, a rope that ties a ship to the dock, a big thick rope, and you can't get that through the eye of the needle. Well, that's just semantics. It's really not what Jesus was referring to. He said the word camel. And that's even more ridiculous to think a camel passing through the eye of a needle. And what he's saying is, it's impossible for human beings, but with God, everything's possible. He says, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. He says, it is easier for a camel to get through the eye of the needle. So three times he's saying, brothers, and hopefully sisters were there too, this is tough, but if you think you can do it on your own, you can't. You can't earn enough of God's love because you can't earn God's love. All you can do is receive it. You can't earn God's favor. All you can do is receive it. You can't earn your way into the kingdom of God through money or good deeds. All you can do is receive the gift that God wants to give to us. Now let me just say something about this God image, which is so important because this might save someone their faith. We all know people, maybe some of us have been there. When things go bad in our lives and we think, where was God? We think that because we are in this achievement theology. If we do good things, we get good things. If we go to church on Sunday morning, things should go well for us on Monday morning. That God image needs to be challenged. And here's why. I've known too many people, friends, faithful folks, who when things get tough, they say, God didn't come through for me. And so I'm out of here. God didn't care for, God didn't care for my friend. And so I'm no longer going to invest in my relationship with God. 
And I've seen people leave church and I've seen people leave their faith because things got bad. Things got dicey. Things went into crisis. And they said, I don't want anything to do with this God because this God let me down. God didn't let that person down. God just didn't fit that narrative that people have. If I do good things, I get good things. If I don't get good things, God is not keeping up with his part of the bargain or her part of the bargain. And that's worth questioning. We need to outgrow that understanding of God and see a God who can only love and who is with us always wooing us to love God back. And so it begs the question, what do we need to give up? For the man in the scriptures, it was his wealth. It was his possessions that hindered his relationship with the loving God. For us, it may be our riches, it may be our wealth that keeps us greedy or hoarding or afraid of losing it. And that may keep us from trusting God, maybe. But maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something that happened to us long ago. Maybe it's an old pain, an old wound, an old hurt that we have held on to because we kind of relish holding on to that resentment and anger. And to let it go, we would wonder who are we? Some people are holding on f- to a desire for revenge because they that gets their blood going. It gets them up in the morning, that kind of fight that says, I'm going to justify my anger and hurt someone else back or hurt someone because I'm so angry. That may be what we need to let go of and give up. It may be a bitterness that we've had for a long time and we wonder who would we be without our bitterness? It may be a victim mentality that's part of our identity. And that may be what we need to give up before we can really follow Jesus and be in the flow of God's love. Maybe it's a self-image that's no longer helpful. In fact, it may never have been helpful. Maybe it's a childhood self-image that we need to let go of because that's not who we are. We're deeper than that. We're more precious than that. Maybe it's a God image that we need to let go of. I close with some reflections from Pastor Garnus Holmes, who writes in response to this gospel passage. You lack one thing. What is that one thing Jesus knows you need to lay your hands on and set to the curb? What impedes your headlong rush into God's arms? What treasure weighs in your pocket? What railing do you cling to even as you long to leap over the tiny abyss between you? Surely your riches, but more? Your expertise? Your approval rating? The despair that enfolds you when you face the fright of the deep unknown? The familiar failure that nestles you, hides you from the risk 
the ask, the new. You won't find it reading this. Go sit in silence and listen for the beckoning. See what arises to stop you. Then lay your hands on it, my friend. Tie it down and walk away. The one thing that you lack is your freedom. God loves us enough in Christ to invite us to let something go. May it be so for you and for me and for all people. Amen.